dating violence is very common in this country, but young women are most likely to experience dating violence. This is done through a constellation of tactics and behaviors, some subtle, some severe, some manipulative, and some direct. If I don't know what to look for and what to listen for, then it can occur right in front of me and I don't, I don't recognize what's actually occurring. In fact, I was part of developing the lethality assessment program, which now is, is um, in 39 states across the country. You know, with my boys growing up, there's a lot of unhealthy examples for them to look at and say, well, that guy's powerful and look what he does. We've got to start first talking about the individual responsible for the abuses. They become, they are master manipulators, right? We have learned behavior of the abuser. We also have learned helplessness of a survivor. I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and actual survivors themselves. Our guest today is Dave Thomas. Dave is with the International Association of Chiefs of Police. As a program manager, he is focused primarily on projects pertaining to the National Law Enforcement Leadership Initiative on Violence Against Women, which is funded by the United States Office on Violence Against Women. Dave's credentials could fill the first hour of this episode, but let me mention a few. During his law enforcement career with Maryland's Montgomery County Police Department, Dave taught at the Police Training Academy. He served on the SWAT team. He was a hostage negotiator and a member of the Domestic Violence Unit. In addition to helping create the Domestic Violence Unit, Dave was responsible for the department's curriculum development in domestic violence training and policy development on domestic violence-related issues. At the time of his retirement in 2000, he was honored to have been the second highest decorated officer in the department's history, receiving numerous awards including the Silver Medal of Valor, the Bronze Medal of Valor, Policeman of the Year, and the Women's Alliance of Maryland Domestic Violence Advocacy Board, to name a few. Dave continues to challenge himself in his quest to achieve excellence in the domestic violence field and considers violence against women his calling in life. So Dave, welcome to the When Dating Hurts podcast. Thank you, Bill, for having me. Uh, it's really, really an, an honor to be here to talk with you about what I consider such an important topic. I could not agree more. Going back a lot of years, and I was trying to remember, but I know it's over a decade, Dave. You and I met for lunch at a macaroni grill. It's got to be it's got to be twelve or thirteen years ago. I don't know, but anyway, at that time, I was just frankly mesmerized by all your knowledge about domestic violence, and I was just happy you took the invitation to meet with me. You know, the one thing I kept thinking about when I was there was that you knew so much and I knew so little. So let me thank you again for helping to bring me along. The thanks is all mine. I'm always, I'm, I'm always really excited when I can share what I know, what I've learned over the years about this topic. These conversations 
really gives a chance to continue discovering, to further collaboration, and really uh, make our community safer. Yeah, that's absolutely true. You've proven that many, many times. You know, Dave, thinking about this chat today, we could start in a dozen places, but maybe we can start with what you're doing now with the International Association of Chiefs of Police, because you go all over the country, and I guess nowadays maybe virtually more than physically, but still, you're going to be back on the road, I'm sure. But you go all over the country and train law enforcement officers. Is that correct? Yes, sir. And it goes beyond just training law enforcement officers. In addition to officers in the room, we have other community stakeholders, people who should be working together collaboratively in order to address these issues. And so there'll be prosecutors, advocates, judges, uh, healthcare providers, school personnel, all those community stakeholders. And you know, we're providing training and technical assistance to these, to these agencies and to these communities under the, the DOJ funding. The projects un, that, that I primarily focus on are the National Law Enforcement Leadership Initiative on Violence Against Women, uh, Identifying and Preventing Gender Bias in Law Enforcement Response to Victims Demonstration Initiative, Action and Justice, Strengthening Law Enforcement Response to Domestic and Sexual Violence National Demonstration Initiative. The law enforcement and the communities they serve uh, support in collective healing in the wake of harm demonstration initiative. And additionally, I work with various other projects and issues being addressed by the International Association of Chiefs of Police, ranging from officer-involved domestic violence to, um, to use of force. So. I have the opportunity to do a lot uh, in these areas because of my my background. So, Dave, when you say officer-involved domestic violence, what does that mean, actually? These are situations in which a law enforcement officer is actually the perpetrator, the abuser. Okay. I'm glad I asked uh, you that. I thought that's what you were going to say. Yeah. Yeah. it's, It's a very challenging aspect of looking at these crimes because, you know, it's, it's the fox watching the hen house in some respects. We, in 1999, that's initially when I really started working in earnest with the International Association of Chiefs of Police, and the project was addressing, mm. for the first time at a national level, officers who were, in fact, batterers. You said early on in, in uh, your response they said, you mentioned all the different people, and you said who should be working together. Now, did you say the word should for any particular reason? Like yes, it, because, it almost insinuated uh, they don't. Ten, I say that should when I, when I talk about community stakeholders, because oftentimes in many communities across the country, these different entities are working in stovepipes. Okay. Um, there's no cross-communication. There's no you know, ongoing communication, collaboration, and cooperation, even though much of the time we have similar goals. And where we're finding the most advances across the country is where they're engaging in in what is known as a coordinated community response in which these stakeholders come together and they find out not only more what their responsibility is, but what the responsibility of their fellow stakeholder is. So when mm-hmm. a survivor comes forward, we can do as much to provide the services and so forth that they need. 
you know, it might not, every case is not going to need a healthcare provider, for instance. And so if that, when that case comes forward, though, we should know which community stakeholders we need to call in and they should all be at the ready to join okay. us to, to uh, really impact this, this topic. And they should be part of the preventive aspect of, of this whole topic. That should is a big should. So just for a moment, going big picture uh, for the purposes of our audience, and I know I've struggled with this even now that I've you know been dealing with this about 15 years, but sometimes terminology gets in the way. Give us your definition of the differences between the terms domestic violence, dating violence, intimate partner violence. Do you see a difference in those? Well, Bill, to me, uh, these terms really are, are somewhat interchangeable. What we're talking about are relationships in which an individual is attempting to establish and or assert power and control of others, of an, of an, and other or others, plural, in the relationship to establish and maintain authority. Mm -hmm. um, this is done through a constellation of tactics and behaviors, some subtle, some severe, some manipulative, and some direct. There, there are different aspects depending on the situation. It can be emotional, verbal, physical, sexual, stalking may be included. But in all of them, there, there, there are these consistent factors, power and control factors. And so, you know, when I hear one, I apply these terms there, or I look for these factors to try to gauge, you know, what's going on in the relationship. Bottom line is abusive behavior from mm -hmm. one individual to, to another or to a, uh, a plural amount of individuals. You know, I'm not one for usually tossing around statistics very much. And I think the reason for that, uh, the way I temper that is it tends to, tends to lose people. You know, they kind of gloss over, uh, even when the numbers are very large. But, you know, people tend to immediately think things like, well, okay, that number sounds big, but doesn't really apply to where I live anyway. How would you underscore the prevalence of, and this is a podcast mostly about dating violence, so people who are not married, but how would you impress upon people who are dating or the parents of those people or friends of those people, how would you impress upon them that it doesn't just happen in some other neighborhood, it could happen right on Main Street where they live? I, I think it's pretty basic. I, I do know through my training and experience, through my research, through responding over the years, that dating violence is very common in this country. It can happen at any age, but young women are most likely to experience dating violence. Uh, and why is that, Dave? Why do you say they're they're more likely? They're well, more likely in a in a heterosexual relationship. We there's a much mm -hmm. higher prevalence of females being the subject of dating violence than males. And that's not to say that it doesn't happen mm -hmm. the other way around. But yes, we're going with, with what the research tells us and what people tell us and what I've seen out there. Mm -hmm. And it had a lot of it. I mean, I, I could teach days on this when it comes to looking at, at history and patriarchy and why the, why the foundations are such that it's, it, it, it is males who engage in a heterosexual relationship. It's the male who is the abusive individual and the female who is the victim most times. That doesn't mean that each and every mm -hmm. time you, go, you don't go in with your eyes open and let the facts and the circumstances 
take you to to your conclusions. But we know that you know it, this holds true time and time again. That it comes to the male and female breakdown. One of the most important things, in, instead of somebody just looking for statistics and so forth, the important thing is knowing what to look for and what to listen for to see what I say is in plain sight. The more that mm-hmm. I can put put a focus on it, the more that I can find what the, the factors are, what the indicators are, the more I'll see. I know myself. When I started learning about this topic as a women's studies minor in college, oh I God. started to Good notice these things amongst my friends, you know, amongst and other people in society. I started to put things into context, you know, when it comes to all those factors and and are those indicators in the in the power and control and so forth. And mm-hmm. you would call them? Would you call them warning yeah, signs? The warning signs. And so once you know yeah. those, you can you can see like, like I say, what's in plain sight. If I don't know what to look for and what to listen for, then it can occur right in front of me, and I don't I don't recognize what's actually occurring. So. When it comes to the numbers, more important, I think, for people to learn is those indicators. And then they have articulable facts and circumstances to be able to say, you know, it's not just an assumption. You go Mm -hmm. from the assumption to critical thinking. Critical thinking meaning having those factors that you can articulate that justify what you think is going on. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think most of us in our lives can look at relationships and think back to to relationships, like you say, with our friends. You see it with your own two eyes. But you might walk away from seeing something and say, you know, he's just like that. He's That's John being John. He's difficult. Uh, We used to say he's so possessive. You know, he wants all of her time to himself. And you wouldn't give it another thought most of the time. You're not looking at this as evidence that's lining up that's pointing in a direction that's really an unhealthy relationship. You know, we just looked at it as, well, you know, he's kind of a pest or, or whatever it is. And I know my daughter's friends looked at the guy she was dating and they just thought he's difficult or they didn't want to be around him, which also was great for him because he was all about isolation anyway. So if they don't like him or don't want to be around him, he scores again in that area, in the power and control, like you were saying. I'm just curious. Um, I'm just, can I just could, add one thing to that too? Yeah, yeah. Uh, always. Bill, what's sure. important is when, when I say look at this, look at these factors in context, I'm talking about in context of everything that's going on in the relationship. One of those factors standing alone may not be that significant, but when they start to cluster and when they are and, and they're ongoing, that's when our antennae should start to really rise up. When I, sure. when I testify as an expert in court on these cases, and I come in uh, and give my expert opinion, a lot of times, it, well, no, it's always based on a totality of circumstances, all of those things in context. And then you can really start to see the picture of what's going on. As they add up, does that add up to something you would call a risk assessment? Is that... That's kind of the technical term for it. Yes. Yeah, the risk is, in fact, I was part of developing the, the Maryland Lethality Assessment Program, which now is, is um, in 39 states across the country. Wow, good for you. Uh, with over 680 some odd different agencies utilizing that, that tool. 
And that tool is good for many reasons because we take the facts and the circumstances and then provide you with a fact-based reason why we feel in this case there's an increased risk of lethality. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and that's the part that it boggles my mind because all that information's there, but so many parents and so many kids, you know, they, they don't, they just don't get it all, you know, and, and, and I've seen it. My wife has seen it, you know, trying to, to bring me in maybe to speak at a school somewhere, even schools where she's taught. And they kind of go into this, you know, it doesn't really happen around here. It's kind of a downer. It's an icky subject. It's almost like, oh, your husband's just going to come in here and, and talk about what happened to his daughter and tell other stories like that. And everybody's going to walk out feeling bad. And that's where it ends. I mean, I've yeah. seen this happen with. Well, and that's why we have to have intentional conversations about this topic, because it is because it, it is real. It does happen. And, you know, one of the ways we can do that is take advantage on a day to day basis of current events. And, you know, when something comes up, have a brief conversation, have a, have a, uh, uh, it, it doesn't have to be formal, have an, inform have an informal conversation about it. You know, with my boys growing up, I've been teaching them on a level, age appropriate level about these, these topics. You know, I use every, every opportunity when a sports figure gets in trouble for doing something, I, I talked to him about it. So, you know, did you hear about Tiger Woods? Did you hear about, you know, when Matt Lauer got in trouble and, and everything and, and talk to them in an age appropriate level and say, do you think, what do you think about the choices that individual made? You know, why, why do you think somebody would make a choice like that? Right. And get the, get the wheels rolling to the point. Now my, my 17 year old and 15 year old will come to me and say, Dad, did you see this on whatever topic it is? What do you think? And we go back and forth. It's second nature to yeah, them. Yeah, that's great. Right? And so this isn't something we wait until they're, well, I'll wait till they get to high school and we'll talk about it. No, no, no. We need to talk about it like we talk about other things. Make it so that th those are choices that they that they know it's a choice. That, you know, the, the, the dysfunctional behavior is a choice that they can make. But they know it's not a good choice. And, you know, you're right. And they'll see it in their friends. They'll see it, you know, like I, I didn't pick up on this with any of my friends growing up. But your sons would see something. And whether they act upon it or get their friend off to the side and say, look, I got to tell you, I know about something you probably don't know about, but you're actually doing it right now. Or it's, hap or it's happening to you. Could be going the other way, as, as we've talked about. Yeah. I'm just curious. Do you, do you feel that there are actually characteristics about some men or women in these unhealthy relationships that makes them somehow different from people who don't wind up either as the abused or the abuser in these unhealthy relationships? Is there something about them that makes them susceptible to, to being the abuser or, or putting up with being abused, do you feel? From my research, from what I've seen, the characteristics in abusive individuals really they are many times dependent or stem from the environment that they grew up in. And what I have found is that the, the choices they make are based on the choices they believe are out there. And so I've got to look at what kind of behavior was modeled for them in their formative years. 
if part of the, the, the behavior model for them was dysfunctional, then they may have dis dysfunctional tendencies. What I found is the more dysfunction that they had coupled with a lack of functional role models and so forth, the more they tend to engage in that dysfunctional behavior. Now, you know, you, you have the home to start out with, and then you have the greater society that they grow up in. And the more dysfunctional that society outside of the home is, coupled with that base they have, then it makes it that much more, it, it makes them much more vulnerable to engaging in, in those types of behaviors. If they have, if they hang out with toxic friends, with hyper-masculine friends, you know, that's going to be an influence. As are, and, and there are so many unhealthy, hyper-masculine things that we see on TV, that we, that we see on on, you know, in the, whether it's media or technology or even some of our political leaders and the way they behave and so forth. There's a lot of unhealthy examples mm -hmm. for them to look at and say, well, you sure. know, that guy's powerful and look what he does. And well, and, and what are the repercussions? Yeah. Yeah. yeah he's doing and it. So and people think he's a big hero. So there are, well, and there, there, there's just so many factors that go into it. It's not one. This is another one. It's not one by itself. Right. And he got away with it. So, you know. There's multiple factors. But what we find is the more positive influences they've had for men, adult male role models who model healthy behavior, who model functional behavior, the more, even for the kid who grew up in the dysfunctional mm -hmm. home, you know, 80% of those who grew up in an abusive home, men don't become abusive. And what we, the, the constant we find when that's the case is that they were able to have in their lives positive male role models. Could have been a teacher, could have been an uncle, could have been a grandparent, could have been the next door neighbor, which tells me, you know, this is... You know, I always have argued that, that, that this is a man's issue. Men are the mm -hmm. ones who are doing this. Men have to teach other men that that is unhealthy masculinity and be a part of the solution. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's fascinating, by the way, when I'm listening to you, it, uh, it reminds me of other conversations I had with uh, one of them was actually a homicide detective who works specifically in the domestic violence area. And all those things you said over the last couple of minutes. I actually was sitting here thinking, has Dave told me this before, or was it Joe, who's who's a, a, a friend I just made in the last year? Because it's the same thing. It's like, if it's in your home, if it's in your environment, then maybe the only thing that's going to pull you out of that area is, as you said, a great model, great mentor, maybe a sports coach who sits down with the guys or sits down with you specifically yeah. And says, look, you know, I'm picking up on some things and this is not good, you know, and, and you have choices here. You don't just have to do, you know, if they know how it, where the modeling is coming from, you don't have to be like that. You know, that's your choice. That's right. And that can turn these people around. But, but if it is kind of imprinted on them and it's reinforced over and over and over, then put into a similar circumstance as they've seen dad do or they've seen uh, some brother or uncle, they just go ahead and it's the cycle of the abuser, right? I mean, they just kind of, yeah. I'm just curious, you know, from your 
studies and all your years doing this. For those who do so, can you tell us why a young person would stay with or date another young person after he or she was abused? Because you hear all these things, and and honestly, for their friends, for their parents, you look at this and say, there are all these people around. Why are you hitching yourself to that particular one when he makes you feel bad or he hurts you or, you know, whatever they know about the relationship. And, you know, yourself from the outside, it looks like even in bad marriages, you know, toxic marriages, unhealthy marriages, you look at these things, but we're talking mostly today about dating. But, but what is about, what is about the people who, uh, why do they stick around? Do you think? Well, you know, I think when, when we talk uh, about the, the why does she stay question, uh, I, I think the first thing that we, anytime that conversation's up, it's really vital that we place the focus on the individual that is engaging in the abusive behavior, right? We're going to, we, that is going to definitely be talked about, but we've got to start first talking about the individual responsible for the abusiveness. Uh, the burden of responsibility really for ending the abuse has to be squarely on the shoulders of that abusive individual. Thus, the question needs to, to, to be, why does he do that? Uh, Lundy Bancroft wrote an excellent book called Why Does, why does He Do That? that really expo- explores this. And it's, it's a highly recommended book that I, I recommend on, on these topics. Mm-hmm. Now, that being said, for survivors, there are a myriad of reasons that they stay. Uh, to begin with, we as individuals are, tend to be change averse, even when it's change for the good. Right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So that's something that we have to look at. And often these abusive behaviors that, that, the, that, that the abuser engages in manifest over time in frequency and intensity. Early on, perhaps they learn in a relationship that if they act in this way, the individual is going to be gone quick. So they become, they are master manipulators, right? Yes. And many times also for this victim, there have been good times in the relationships, in these relationships. And the hope for them is that maybe this will be the last time that this type of things happen. And, and, mm-hmm. and he's promising he's going to change and maybe he will change. I just got to give him, give him a chance. Yeah, they, and they want to get back to the storybook romance that they saw in the beginning, yes, which was actually absolutely. the beginning of the They've manipulation. And they know that the other individual is capable of it. Capable. Right? Yes. Capable. Uh, and then understand also that when in the midst, midst of the relationship, it's really difficult to have that 10,000 foot view of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Way too close. And time again, I know you've talked to victims um, or to survivors in this podcast and so forth, you know, I, and I've listened to many of them. They talk about having that 10,000 foot view. If they knew then what they know now, they never would have stayed that long. But when you're in the middle of it, you can't see it for what it is. You become numb to this ongoing behavior that was slightly turned up, right? right? So all of that together, really, to me, is a, an explanation of why that individual remains in that toxic relationship. And, you know, most of us, well, if that was me, I would have left. Well, you know, a lot of us do a lot, stay in a lot of things that we're, we're not happy about, but we just, well, I'll just deal with it, you know, type of thing. And few of us at the drop of a dime would leave the relationship 
right away. I know with my wife, you know, if she started doing things that were abusive in nature, I would do everything I could to work with her to try to, for us to get to a better place. I wouldn't just say, boom, that, that's it. I'm done. Right. Individuals really need to stop and think before they judge someone who makes that choice. Also, remember that individual may not have the same level of self-esteem that that uh, who's being abused may not have the same level of self-esteem. They may have we have learned behavior of the abuser. We also have learned helplessness of a survivor who maybe was modeled for them is this is what you accept. This is this is normal. You know, that may be their normal, you know, to say when, you know, I like to also talk about thinking somebody can make the choice to leave assumes that they know that's a choice. Mm, that's right. Yeah. If they yeah, don't know that's... that's a choice. How are they to make it? Right? Yeah. They don't know that's on the menu. That's right. Yeah. It's a fascinating thing, isn't it? You know, and I was thinking about when you said if you and your wife got into that type of thing, immediately you think, wow, but we, we've done so much together. You know, it's been so great. And I remember when we met and, you know, the magical times yep. that we've had. And, and, you know, this, you keep thinking, I, 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 you turn into this fixer upper, you know, and it's like, you know, maybe if I just, I don't know, you know, change the scene a little bit. And, and uh, in the meantime, if someone's saying something to you, it's like, you don't, you don't know her, you know, you don't know her like I do. This is what abused people say all the time. You don't know him. You don't see his good times, his good side and all that type of thing. Yep. And it's true. They don't, they, they just see the damage, you know, that's being inflicted. That's all they're getting. So focusing on the abuser, Dave, you know, whether it's emotional abuse or physical or both, do you think that person has a chance of completely stopping that behavior? I mean, can they be turned or reformed? Obviously, there are instances, but I mean, do you have any sense of of the, of, uh, the batting average of, of taking somebody who's a pretty rough abuser and, and shining a light on that person so they see themselves and they, they bottom out and they stop? I mean, is, is that just kind of like a the statistics are so low, it's just like give it up? What do you think? Yeah, I, I do. I, I believe they, they can change. And, and if I didn't believe that abuser could, couldn't control or change their behavior, I wouldn't be involved in batter intervention. And, and I am involved in batter intervention. The behavior can be changed, but it takes hard work and effort and a genuine mm -hmm. desire to want to change. With that, in, with, with that genuine desire at the base, the individual really is going to need to work every day for the rest of their life at maintaining that goal. It's, it's like being somebody who, because it's an addiction and it's somebody who, like somebody who goes into drug rehab and we see how many mm. times, you know, some individuals, you know, go back to drugs before they're able to kick the habit, if they're ever able to kick the habit, whether it's drugs or alcohol or anything like that. So is it possible? Yes, it, it is possible, but it, it takes a lot of, this is a habit uh, like other habits that has to be broken. Can it be broken? Absolutely. It's not something that, that that's like a flip of a switch. It's really gonna take some, some time and, and some effort. My daughter was murdered in 2005 by her ex-boyfriend. And no, time doesn't heal all wounds. 
Since those dark days, I have given over 100 speeches and interviews. To be able to dispense such life-saving information, I needed to do a lot of research. Now it's all in one place. My daughter's story and our family's journey is now available in a book entitled When Dating Hurts, available only on Amazon in paperback and ebook. If you have a child, a family member, or a friend between 16 and 24 years of age, I suggest you give When Dating Hurts a read. The information in this book has already saved lives. Let's say you were sitting in front of somebody who is an abuser, like a serial abuser, right? What kind of things would you want that person to, besides obviously stopping, but I mean, what do you tell that person? Do you say, when you get that angry, you need to do this and this? Or, uh, you know, when those triggers are starting to fire? Yeah, you, you, it seems to me you have to have replacement behavior in their minds, right? You have to look at things in context, like I've mentioned before, and try to figure out what are the factors present when they engage in this the assaultive behavior, the verbally abusive behavior, any of the, the, the toxic behaviors that they're before me about, and then figure out strategies in order for, to help them make better choices. In mm-hmm. those but situa- like, what's an? In those but situations. what would be an? Ex- but give uh, give me an example of a strategy. If well, you can. I mean, it's you know everything from stopping and count to ten when they feel their their blood rising, going into another room until they can calm themselves down. It's all about de-escalate, de-escalate, de-escalate. Okay. Looking and see, you know, for many of these people, maybe alcohol and drugs are a factor, uh, and. And while I'm talking about that, you know, if they are, if they have a problem with alcohol and drugs and they have a problem with being physically or sexually abusive, then those are two things that have to be approached at the same time because they happen at the same time. You can't just approach one and think it's going to happen. It's going to take care of the other. Mm -hmm. There are two different toxic behaviors that both have to be addressed. And that means both individuals working with that particular person need to strategize together to try to help them to a better place. And so we have to, you know, they have to, we have to find something that's an alternative behavior that they can engage in and something that they'll do day in and day out. Think of a a good, if, if we think about functional behaviors that we do day in and day out. And we consistently do. Sometimes it's not as convenient as other times, but we still do it. And Mm -hmm. so it means for that individual, finding something that they can develop a good habit in doing. And it can't be so caustic to them that they're going to stop doing it in six weeks. So caustic meaning like, I don't know, um, so painful so, for them. So something that they just aren't going to be able to stick to. Um, so you have to keep fishing around until you hit the one that yeah, they can do, you, you which really, could be the get up and leave the room deal or something. You really do. And I found, you know, when I was in the police department, one of the, when I was teaching full time at the police academy, I also taught defensive tactics and physical training. And I provided agency members with training programs to, to keep themselves fit. And one of the things I, I first did when I, that I started to do when I was getting a gauge of what we could do, whether it was running, biking, swimming, walking, 
I had to find out for them how prohibitive is this type of exercise going to be for you? You know, are you going to get up hating to do it? If you're going to get up hating to do it, then you're only going to do it for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, and you're going to stop. So I said, you need to find something that you enjoy to do that's going to give you the cardiovascular exercise that you need. You know, don't run because I run. I mean, I still run, you know, 20 miles a week, but I enjoy doing it. I'm not, I, and you know, it's starting to tell on me a little bit, but you know, I'm 62. So I, it's, it's not as easy to do as it was in the past. And I know I've got to do, but I love doing it. Right. And so find something that they like to do with the, with, with, with this type of intervention, we have to find something that that individual is willing to continue to do something that's realistic. So it can't be that I just think you should automatically do A, B, and C. It's not one size does not fit all. Sure. And we have to be willing to do the work individually that's going to help this individual get to where they individually need to be. It's more work. This isn't something you can broad brush if you really want to help them. Now, there, there, there may be some consistence with from one person to another, but generally, you know, you're trying to find those those things that that may be um, may work. And you're talking with your colleagues all the time, continually, like we're, we talked at the beginning, learning, continuing to find more information to try to make this fit for another individual. It may be something, you know, you may have a program that worked really well for somebody last year that you can apply to this individual and boom, it works. It's like clockwork. And the next one you might come to, it's, it just ain't going to work. So what would you tell parents if they suspected that their child was involved with a guy or a girl they felt uncomfortable about? So you're thinking, you know, your parents or your a friend and you say, wow, I think my friend or my child is involved in one of these relationships like they're, they were talking about on that podcast that day, this podcast we're doing right now. But what would you tell them, you know, if they, they thought that, that their child or their friend was, had a relationship with somebody who was abusive to their child? What would you tell those parents to do? I think of things like, like for instance, in our case, I would probably wish I had expressed some concerns about this guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe someone says, well, you know, you can do a background check. I didn't think of that in 2005. You know, that might have led to something. Or I'm kind of leading you a little bit, but I mean, you know, getting to know your child or your friends, other friends sometimes, you know, that kind of could lead to answers. You know, maybe you can speak with the friends and maybe the friends say, well, to tell you the truth, Mr. Smith, this guy that your daughter's dating really worries all of us. You know, that could be alarming, but at least you know that, okay, you know, there is smoke. If someone suspected someone they cared about is in one of these relationships on the, on the abused side of it, what kind of things do you think they should do? Background check's not a bad idea, but background check's not going to capture everything. Uh, or it might be the individual who's be, been squeaky clean up to that time that a background oh, sure. check is not going to have any input on. So if that, mm-hmm. ever, you know, background check, I'm, I'm like, yep, that's fine. It might give you some information. But sure. I, I think uh, you, you, you definitely want to go the route of finding out as much information as you can with the, uh, the, the resources you have at your disposal. So you want to 
you're Googling for information, you're, you know, you're getting up to speed on signs that the individual may be in an abusive relationship. You're having intentional conversations with your daughter or your son. And you're definitely, you know, talking to their friends. I, you know, with my boys, I talk to their friends all the time. What's going on? How you guys doing? You know, if they're going out somewhere, you guys going? And I take a page out of the book. Um, uh, Dr. Dorothy Ed- Edwards is a professor. Was a is a professor at the University of Kentucky, and she created the Green Dot program, which goes into bystander intervention, getting kids to be responsible for taking care of not only themselves, but their friends, because she realized how vital friendship is at that age and how these kids care more about their friends than they do themselves. Mm, That makes sense. And, you know, I've already done this engaging in getting their friends, you know, if they're going out somewhere and I'll pull one of their friends up and say, hey, are you going to watch out for Nick tonight? Right. And and they'll say, yeah, I'm going to watch out for Nick. So if anything happens, you're you're, going to call me. Good. And you're going to let me know ahead of time. Right. You promise that. Right. You can shake my hand right here and tell me that. I know if I tell, you know, if I say that to Nick, he might ignore me. But that kid knows they got to wow, see me, in, you know, every other week. Yeah. They, they just got handed a responsibility. That's, and so you, <laughs> That's a good one. And you pass that around from kid to kid. Now, if I if those kids, if as a parent, I'm doing that all along, I can go to that same kid if I think something might be going on and saying, hey, what's going on with Nick and his, his new girlfriend? What's going on with Jake and his new girlfriend, right? And so it, you know, ahead of time, but, you know, here we're talking about somebody who, who hasn't done that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start talking as much as I can to, to these friends and getting as much information as I can. And, you know, some in some situations, you might be a little bit more uh, successful than others. But these are things that I would start to engage in, finding out what to look for, finding out what to listen for, and continuing to, to leave that door wide open for that child and not judging. You know, this is about giving an individual choices so that they can make a good choice when things come up. It's not so much if i tell them what to do whether it's my child whether it's a friend that's somebody else exerting power and control over them i need to give them the Mm -hmm. the the different options and then let them make a choice that's empowering them right and so and and that can be really hard sometimes when i first started doing this work I, i i was going in with you know, the, the knight in shining armor coming in to save people, you know, like, and that wasn't helping those people. And it's not about me. It's about them. And I had to realize that. Yeah. Ultimately, you want to kind of help them so they can help themselves. I mean, that's what you're and, you're, and you're giving them enough things to think about so that they can do that. You know, they now have maybe a different context in which to look at what's going on around them because you're giving them a bigger picture, you know, and yeah. So yeah, that's really smart. I, I love the whole thing about talking to their friends and and putting some of the responsibility on them. You know that it, you know it's like I have to answer to Mr. Thomas. I better amp up yeah. amp up what I'm watching here. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel the motivation of abusers is along the lines of if I can't have you, then no one can have you? Does this kind of go through the minds? Do you think of abusers, especially when there's the possibility of of uh, 
the person being abused wanting to break up is, do you think that's going through their mind like you know your mind your mind kind this, of this too is contextual it depends on you know for me i would be looking at the degree to which the individual in, in question is immersed in their attempts to establish and maintain power and control as well as other factors going on in their life at the time. And this is where that danger, danger, risk, lethality assessment comes in. So I can put things into perspective. The, 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 the less, one thing that seems to be fairly consistent, the less that individual feels they have to lose, the more their potential to be lethal and not mm. to worry about being held accountable. The individual, especially who is homicidal and suicidal is really dangerous because if they're suicidal, they've already, they're telling you, you're not going to hold me accountable. Right. And so that's something where I'm looking at all of the factors. I'm finding out as much information as I can so that I can really make a educated guess as to what might happen that I, I've, I've engaged in the critical thinking. And when you think about it, or when you look at it, if you look at the way that FBI profilers look at a case, you know, they don't just come in and make a guess or something. They look at mounds and mounds and mounds of information and then create a profile based on all of this behavior. The best predictor of future behavior is past behavior, right? And sure. so of course. we are really delving through all of that stuff and find out, you know, we're doing as much of a information dig as we can. And the more information we have, the more focus that picture comes in, the more we can put things into focus. Without much information, we have a really hard time coming to, with any re reasonable expectation or conclusion. So, you know, this individual, like, you know, if you look at Jackie Campbell's danger assessments, there's 25 different items on it. One of the items, for instance, just to give you an idea, is, is the individual gainfully employed? Mm. Yes or no. And, you know, let's say the answer is no, that, you know, somebody might automatic. Well, no, he's he's dangerous. My next question is going to be, well, how long have they been unemployed? They've been unemployed for the last 10 years. All that doesn't have as much significance to me as the person who just lost their dream job. And it makes sense. Totally. And then coupled with all of those other factors, those other questions, does he own a gun? Yes. How long has he owned a gun? He just bought one last week, as opposed to he's had guns all his life, mm -hmm. right? So I'm weighing all these things in the context of this relationship and then coming, trying to come to some reasonable conclusion as to what we've, we've got going on here. Let's follow that for a minute. Let's say you see all these factors. I mean, you keep scoring it so that, wow, 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 you know, this is, you know, this is going to blow up. So now what do you do? I mean, as, as, uh, I'm trying to picture, let's say you've had a conversation with this young woman and she's dating this guy and it's hitting all the, the job situation and his background situation. And he has said he'll kill himself if they ever break up. And he just got a gun a couple of weeks ago. So then I say, so what do you do now? I mean, what is that like you take all that, sit down with somebody and say, look, everything that we have on our 25 point scoring sheet here points to someone's going to get killed. Is that, but, but I mean, I'm trying to picture in, in a very real way, yeah. then what? Well, this is, besides the fact you and I would agree that, that this is, you know, this is a stick of dynamite and this is a torch. So well, this is not going to end well. 
So, so I mean, what literally, what do you do then? Besides present that to somebody and say, either you get out of this relationship or, you know, you could be killed. Well, we use, first of all, we use the results of the, of the assessment to inform the victim why we are scared for them and their life and the life of others around them, right? And we, we look at whether or not in this situation is getting a protection order or a peace order a good idea. If the analysis tells us that yes. getting a peace order or a protection order is only going to make that individual more volatile, then we're, that's where the collaboration piece comes in. That's where I want advocates' input into this. That's where we're, we're, we're making a decision. We may need to get this person to the other side of the country. You know, we have advocacy groups in this country, shelters and so forth, who have contacts with one another. And we have the, the money and the ability to get them to California or to get them to Utah or to get them somewhere else. Dave, when you say we, who is we in this case? We, I mean, we, through a coordinated community response and having, you know, whether it's a domestic violence task force or whatever, a collaborative where we're working together. When we have, when something like this pops up, that's when I'm calling, let's say I'm the detective working this case, right? I'm calling, I should, I should be collaborating with an advocate already. And Maryland announced uh, the Family Justice Center when I was, uh, I'm sorry, in Montgomery County. Now it's the Family Justice Center. When I was there, it was the Abuse Persons Program before the Family Justice Center came along. So I would be working with the Family Justice Center and say, this is how this individual scored on the danger assessment, the lethality assessment. This is how I'm feeling based on the answers that they were able to give. What is our safety plan for them? What should we do? And if they, if it's extreme enough, that's where they are, are working with their partners across the country in order to try to get this individual out of town, perhaps, to get them to, to totally move them. I mean, there have been case after case after case where it's like the witness protection program when it comes to changing that individual's identity and so forth. So it's all going to be based once again, on the information that we have wow. and working hand in hand with that survivor, you know, we're not going to make them do this. Absolutely not. We're going to give them choices. I'm, if, if, it, if it's that dangerous, that's where I say, ma'am, I'm scared for your life. And I'm scared for life because people, persons, survivors who have been in the same situation with the same factors mm -hmm. that you have going on, on here have been killed. I'm not trying to scare them. I'm trying to tell them the, rea the reality of their existence as it stands right now. Sure, sure. Yeah, you're trying to save that person. Sure. So if somebody were listening to this, because this is an amazing thing, and they say, oh, my God, that's my daughter. You know, that my daughter, and I don't haven't seen your list, your 25 points and all that, but, but I, I need to get this case. I need to get this situation in front. Is there someone they could contact right now? Well, I think one of the first things they need to do is, is call the local service provider. If they don't know who that is, they can call 1-800-799-SAFE, right. the national hotline, and they'll be able to refer them to who the local Good. service provider is. They yes. can Google it or, or whatever um, okay. in order to get who that individual is and, and start the network going to get them 
to uh, to that safe place. Yeah, that's the uh, yeah. You're right. That's the hotline for the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Yeah, I've got that number committed to memory. I've yeah, I have that on shirts and everything. You know, <laughs> that's a fabulous thing. Thank you for going down that path. I know that took a while to get there, but you know that's just great information, Dave. Oh, can I just mention one thing while I'm thinking about it, Bill? If I'm scared for my 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 son or my daughter, if I'm trying to learn more about it myself. One of the best books, quick read that you can get is called The Gift of Fear by Gavin DeBecker, D-E, capital B-E-C-K-E-R, The Gift of Fear. Excellent book, talks common sense as to screening out whether this individual is abusive or not, you know, and everything. DeBecker is one of the best in the country. Um, with it. Now, is that a book about domestic violence? Or my recollection is that's a book about fear in general, how fear can save your life. I mean, the benefits how of fear. fear. Well, and it's talking about domestic violence in particular and stalking and, and so forth, why this should be seen as toxic behavior, you know, these, these different things and trust your gut. You know, women in our society are taught to be nice and everything and don't offend. You know what? If the guy is about his work, he shouldn't be offended if you say, no, I don't need your help. No, I don't need this. You know, no, I don't need that. That you have to, women especially, though, should trust their intuition, trust their gut, even to the point of, you know, he talks about if you're in, let's say you're up at the mall and you get a flat, instead of having some, a, a guy stop and help you with the flat, you pick the guy out that you want to help you with the flat. You're much oh, more likely to find somebody who is going to be willing to help and not trying to take advantage of your situation as to the, the guy who comes up and volunteers. That's not to say that somebody who comes up and volunteers has bad intentions. But if you make the choice, it's much better than some guy making the choice that might be taken, trying to take care. And the guy, you know what? The guy who says, ma'am, can I help you with that tire? You say, no, I've got it. They're not going to be offended at all if they have the right intention. So you're good. Yeah. I mean, look for all, you know, the guy that comes up to help you is the guy that gave you the flat. Yeah, exactly. Could be yeah. that, you know, setting it up. That's right. Yeah. I, I'm sure that, uh, you know, that's on the, it's in the playbook somewhere for, for perps, right? With prevention in mind, Dave, what can parents do right this minute to help prevent their child from becoming a dating violence victim or a dating violence perpetrator for that matter? Well, I, I, I go back to the, uh, the green dot strategies going on and Googling green dot and looking at the, the program that, that um, Dr. Edwards set up and getting the, you know, this is where parents can collectively get their, get the school system to start engaging in preventive type strategies that mirror or are exactly what Green Dot is. Teaching bystander intervention, the three Ds, direct, distract, diffuse, and you know, choices that the child can make based on what they feel they have the ability to do. I tell people all the time, you know, if I see something going on, I'm gonna probably be pretty direct, but I've been trained to be direct and so forth. You've got to do what's safety, what's safe for you and what you're comfortable doing. Uh, diffusion is just, is just a thing of where they're, you know, they see something going on and they, if I'm in the I'm yelling at somebody and somebody comes up, yo, Dave, what's up? Just to, just to distract me from whatever I'm doing. 
you know, the, or, you know, you may want to diffuse even more. But it's the bottom line is it talks about doing something, whatever you have the ability. It might be going and telling a teacher. Right. But not just doing nothing. Doing nothing enables the behavior. And for a parent, the good thing about having the school be involved in doing it, whether it's uh, secondary, primary, secondary uh, college, is it's 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 uh, other adults working with those kids to help them um in their social relationships right uh not just mom or dad right telling them to do it and and then getting as educated on this topic for their kids and having conversations with them talking and it you know the best conversations that and i'm sure you've noticed this with your kids the best conversations you have have with them aren't telling them you want to sit down at five o'clock this evening right. and talk to them about something you know, it's going to going to to or from the mall and just casually engaging yeah. in conversation, you know, or doing something where you're you're both doing something together, fishing, whatever, where you're just casually talking about things, but taking those opportunities to gently talk about these right, things. Right, sure. Just slip it in right. there. Right. It, it is a process. Right. But you're right, slipping it in, you know, it's not a meet at five o'clock and then practically do a PowerPoint presentation for the next hour and a half, you know, and then there'll be yeah. a test. For the young men and women who might be listening in on this, I mean, they could be young adults, they could be high school, college, you know, and after that listening right. in, uh, who who could be being potentially abused or have friends that are going through that. What can you tell them so they're able to help their friends or family members or even themselves from becoming victims or perpetrators? What can you well, I mean, that, that again comes, comes with the more awareness you have, the more you know what to look for and what to listen for, the more you're going to be able to avoid either being in these types of relationships or, or being that type of a person. Some people may be able to look at this and say, man, I do that. It's absolutely <laughs> you know, true. Reflection, which, is, which is every bit as important and vital. So it's, an, it's a check on people, on things. I know some of the things, even being as steeped as I am in this, in this topic, I'm always looking in to see, for instance, if I have any implicit biases, you know, any unconscious bias that causes me to be sexist or causes me to do toxic things. And any of us who are being honest will say, yeah, you know what? I catch myself every now and again, and I do, and hopefully I do what I can to correct those things that I do in, mm -hmm. in that manner. Uh, and so, because none of us is perfect. The bottom line is engaging kids that, at the age appropriate behavior time and time again, whether it's our kids, what it's other adults who are in our family and our friendships, ha having conversations with them about this, calling them on this type of toxic behavior. I'm, it's known if I'm around a social gathering of friends, family, everything, you say something out of line, you, everybody knows wow. I'm going to call them on it. A lot of my, my whether it's a family member or, or our close friends, you know, the boys, the parents of the boys, friends and so forth. If they ever have an issue with this type of topic, I'm getting a phone call. I'm getting a text, which because they know what I do. I make it uh, very well known what I do. I make certain to talk loud in our social gatherings when we get on this topic 
to my male <laughs> friends. Good. That's great. Yes, sure. Right? They won't even go there if it's to the negative side. And that's, I always tell them, look, you got another, you got another opinion, pack a lunch and let's talk about it. I'm going to come at you with facts and circumstances. This isn't just my opinion and I'm not going to come well with this, with the invisible army saying, well, some people, I'm going to tell you exactly what people do this and things of that sort. So it's, it, 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 and practicing what I'm preaching, having those intentional conversations, being invested in not only my kids, but other people's kids. Because I, I honestly do believe it takes a village. And it's, it's important that I, every opportunity I get, I have, influence young people as much as I can and influence other adults as much as I can. And, you know, it's, I don't look at it as an, a, an obligation. I look at it as an opportunity. This is like you said in the beginning, this is your life's work and, yeah. and I, I can see you, you don't turn it off. <laughs> it's just a great thing. Dave, is there anything, any question maybe that I may have missed in this conversation that, that anything you wanted to? No, I, I think, I think you pretty much covered it. I, I think the, the main thing that I, I would, my biggest people that I want people to take away is whether it's dating violence or intimate partner violence or domestic violence, we all should take the responsibility to, to, to step forward and make sure we know what to look for. Make sure we know what to listen for. Make sure we get the facts. They are readily available, much more so than when you and I were in high school mm -hmm. <laughs> or college or even after, right? The information is out there. So, you know, get it so that you, we can make not only our own children safe, but our uh, uh, other children and, and make our, our society safe. It's the, the more that, that we have this coordinated response, the less room there is going to be for this type of behavior to proliferate. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And, and people who are like-minded, I know you and I are completely in that place, but the other people I've met over the last 15 years ago, you know, they're always so ready to work together and share what they know. And, yep. and uh, you know, uh, the network is there, you know, and so I, I've just been very happy that that I've been kind of connected to, to a lot of schools, to a lot of people in law enforcement, you know, just domestic violence people. All that's great. I mean, the, the sharing is great and, and, uh, and it's, it's an open, open area. And that anybody that wants to approach somebody like you or me about their child or about a friend of theirs, you know, we're always right there. We're ready to, to talk and offer and stay up late or get up early, you know, to help these people. Absolutely. So Dave, um, thank you so much for setting aside all this time to speak with us today. And as always, as years ago, and obviously today, I've benefited so much from this conversation and, and I'm sure our listeners have too. You were very helpful, by the way, very helpful to me reading my book about a year and a half ago, months and months before it was published, but you read it, you gave me your take. I was a little nervous because uh, I felt like I was... <laughs> You know, putting it before somebody who knew way more than I did, and, and you were kind, you're gentle. So anyway, I just need to thank you on so many levels. You're just a, you're a great guy. You you are so positive, and you know so much. You articulate it so well. You know, you're just, just an amazing guy. I don't know how else to put it. So I'm just happy to call you friend. You know, thank you. 
Well, thank you. And thank you so much for writing the book. You know, this is something I, like I said, this, it does take a village. It's our power is in numbers and continuing to work together, continuing to learn and continuing to move forward. So, you know, you, I really appreciate both our professional and personal relationship. I look forward to continuing working with you as we, as we move on. Absolutely. The more, the better, Dave. Thank you so much. Okay. All right, sir. You take care. I'll be calling you up soon. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye now. One in three women will suffer serious physical violence in an intimate partner relationship. It typically happens between the ages of 16 and 24, but can happen at any age. We lost our daughter to dating violence, but if we had read a book like When Dating Hurts back then, we believe things would have turned out differently. Do your daughter a favor. Do your family a favor. Dating violence is real. Believe me, I know. Read When Dating Hurts, then pass a copy to someone who needs to see it. When it comes to something as insidious as dating violence, there are no do-overs.